Okay, good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's continue. So we are picking up in Neretz Hashem in Perek Shira. We're continuing to focus a little bit on Laila. So remember again, in our last class, we've been focused on the statement of the night. So we, we were focusing in our last class, and will the Neretz Hashem continue to focus in this class as well, on the concept of emuna, a definition of emuna, a context of emuna. So we went through again Rashi's approach. Well, two Rashi's, both in number three and number four. Uh, did we do the radak? I think we maybe left off at number five. Is that possible? Okay, so let's take a look. Let's begin with the radak. So remember again, what we know from this pasuk before we plug it back into Parakshira and try to understand the overarching message of. Laila of the night, what we understand from David HaMelech is that he is creating a contrast. There's something So ultimately, again, the contrast between day and night is obvious and observable. What David HaMelech is also doing is creating a contrast between the concept of chesed and the concept of emunah. So as we continue to develop this a little bit, take a look at the Radak, and this is actually quite beautiful. The Radak writes, Remember again, we already saw in Rashi this idea that the boker that David HaMelech is referring to is not necessarily the boker of mourning, but rather again, it's the boker of geula. Right, what we called again, whether we're talking about messianic redemption, whether we're talking about Olam Haba, and that's why again, even going, going to the Mizmor Shiliyom Shabbos, remember Shabbos doesn't have to refer to Shabbos as the seventh day of the week, but rather again, Shabbos could also refer to, as we saw before, the Yom Shekula Shabbos. Once again, is that referring to messianic redemption? Is it referring to Olam Haba? I don't know that it. I don't know that it necessarily matters. The answer to that, for our purposes, it could be either one. So the Radak goes on, and he he espouses the same idea. So ultimately, again, says the Radak, and I think we kind of touched on this in the last class as well. The Radak explains the boker refers to redemption. The Laila refers to Galus, refers to exile. Kolomar, Kishiyagia Hapoke. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. I think there's someone in the waiting room. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So he goes on, he says, Kilomar Kishiyagia Haboker, Nagit Chasdecha, Shate Ase Imano Bahotzi Acha Osano Mehagalos. Afapi, Shanu Chayavim Kalia Bagalos Mirov Avanosenu. I'm just going to read one more line, then we'll translate. Where was that from? Was I hearing background music? Someone's phone? Okay, good. All right, good. So let me make sure I'm not losing it. Good. So the Radak says as well. So the Radak points out something really amazing. Going with this idea of Boker representing Geula, redemption. Laila representing Golos. So first we'll explain what the Radak is saying and then we'll kind of build it out a little bit. So according to the Radak, Lahagid Baboker Chasdecha. Obviously again, when Geula comes, the Chesed of the Ribono Shel Olam is obvious and apparent. And it'll be clear to all. But incredibly enough, says Radak something amazing. You know, there, there's a fundamental Achlokes in the Gemara 
Let's focus for a moment on Messianic redemption. When does Mashiach come? When does Mashiach come? So there's a machlokis in the Gemara. I'm sorry? What, say that once more. Good. Kulo chayev, kulo zakir. It's a machlokis in the Gemara. Right? Either at the end of the day we could be fundamentally deserving of it, or perhaps there's just like a clock. And once you run down the clock, Mashiach's going to come at the end of some predetermined amount of time. So this is a fundamental machlokis in the Gemara. The Radak here points out something amazing. The Radak says what we dive in for each and every day is even if we don't deserve Mashiach and even if we don't deserve Gula, we ask for it anyway. We ask for it anyway. So the Radak points out something absolutely amazing. Think about this just a moment. What's the ultimate chesed of messianic redemption? The ultimate chesed which could be manifest in the coming of Mashiach? What would you say? Is the ability of Mashiach to come even if we don't deserve it. That's the ultimate chesed that focuses on the bokeh. Remember again, if we go with the idea that bokeh represents Mashiach, bokeh represents redemption, the chesed of the bokeh is the willingness of the ribono shel olam to bring about geula even if we are undeserving of it. And ultimately, again, says the Radak, that emuna, that belief, that knowledge, that you, Ribbon Shalom, can bring about Mashiach, even if we don't deserve it, ultimately, again, is what gets us through the night. So the knowledge that even if we're undeserving, Gula could come, is by definition the emuna which gets us through the night time of life. And again, this goes back to what we referenced before, because as, as was mentioned in our last class, the order seems to be a little bit backwards, because if you understand that Boker is Mashiach and Laila is Galos, so which one should be mentioned first in the Pasuk? Laila, right? Just chronologically, we're currently in Galos, we're currently in the Laila, we're waiting ultimately to get to the Boker of Mashiach, but now it makes a lot of sense because what David Amalek is saying is something incredibly amazing. We spoke about it in our last class that in order to get through the Laila of Golos, what do you need? What do you need? You need hope. You need hope to get through any crisis in life. You need hope. So ultimately, again, what David Amalek is saying is it's that chesed of the boker. And specifically, according to the Radak, that chesed is that I don't have to wait till I deserve Mashiach in order for Mashiach to come. But you could even bring him, even if I don't deserve it, that chesed of the boker is what is necessary in order to get the amuna. That's the belief that helps me get through the night. So once again, the Radak highlights this idea. So, so far we see a common theme. That first of all, Shabbos is not a reference to the seventh day of the week, but Shabbos is a reference to Yom Shekula Shabbos. The Boker is a reference to Messianic Redemption. The Laila is a reference to Galos. And at the end of the day, the picture that David HaMelech is, is painting for us is the only way to get through the night of Galos is with the belief, is with the belief of the Chesed of the Boker. The only way to get through the, what sometimes feels like, like an unending diaspora is a belief not just only in Mashiach, but a belief that the Rivon Shom could bring that Mashiach again even if we don't deserve it. That's the chesed. You know, I, I often feel that when we speak about concepts like this, they're often difficult for us to relate to. Why are they difficult for us to relate to? In general, when you speak about Mashiach, it's difficult for us to relate to it. For many of us, why? Because 
So first, because nobody really knows what it is, right? That, that's number one. What is Yemosa Mashiach going to look like? You know, we just, uh, Dafyomi just finished Masech Shkalim a few days ago. And there's an incredible Gemara there that speaks about the Messianic era. And the Gemara talks about the idea that when Mashiach comes, the agricultural process is going to be expedited. So it normally takes wheat six months to go ahead and grow. When Mashiach comes, it may take a matter of weeks. It may take a matter of days. And then there's another opinion that says loaves of bread will grow from the ground. Yet there are other opinions that say olam kimin hagonohig. The world is going to be as it is. What's the, so one reason it's difficult for us to relate to Mashiach is because at the end of the day, we don't really know what it is. What's another reason why it's difficult to relate? And this is, this is actually a good problem, but it's an interesting one. Why is it difficult for us to relate to Mashiach? Say, say it a little bit louder again. I'm sorry, I just can't hear you. Oh, excellent. You see, I, I, I'll, I'll ask you to, to ponder a very interesting question. Do you really want Mashiach? Now, don't answer it, because, of course, everybody says, yes, of course I want Mashiach. Hey, think about this for just a moment. We live in incredible times, right? The truth is, is there anti-Semitism in the world? Of course, there's always anti-Semitism in the world. But think about this for just a moment. We're in Gullus. How many of us acutely feel like we're in Gullus? How many of us? Okay, so maybe you're just back from seminary, so you're still on that high. Or it's just, oh, yeah, yeah, good, right? So, so, but Amir Hashem, you know, halavai Yisrael, get back there. So we should all get back there as Yisrael. But it wears off. You'll go on. You'll go on. And it's an interesting thing. Like, how much do we acutely feel like there's something fundamentally missing from our lives? So we have periods like that, like on Tisha B'av, when you're forced, forced to focus on Chorban, so we feel, and by the way, it's a pigam in us because there's a lot missing from our lives. There's an incredible amount, but think about the Jew historically. The Jew historically who had to constantly combat anti-Semitism. You know, I'll never forget my, my uncle, Zichron Levracha, his father used to celebrate a personal Yom Tiv on the second day of Pesach. Per- personal Yom Tiv. Unless we say, what is the second day of Pesach? When he was a boy in Poland, he was playing outside, and a group of Polish teenagers picked him up and threw him into a well. They threw him into a well, and he should have died, but he, miraculously, he didn't. See, he celebrated that as like a personal Yom Tiv. And you hear a story like that, like, What? Like, what, what is that? That was Maisim Bechol Yom. That was coming. You were at the whim, you were at the whim of the people who lived around you. You were at the whim of institutionalized anti-Semitism. The life of a Jew was worth absolutely nothing. And that was our national experience for generation after generation. You're young, so you don't necessarily realize the times in which you live. And these are, it's an overused term now, unprecedented times. But, you know, I, I don't mean about a pandemic. I, I mean just like in terms of like cloud Israel. Like, like think about what we have. And think about what we have in Galus. Forgetting about what's the incredible things that are happening in Eretz Israel. So sometimes it's hard for us to relate to this Dynamic, but one of the things that we must constantly be ever aware and ever present of is we are in Galus, 
And we cannot forget that we are in Galus. And we cannot forget that as wonderful as life is here, this is not the way it should be. Am Yisrael belongs in Eretz Yisrael, with the Beis HaMikdash as a unified people, with the Ribbono Shel Olam actively apparent and present in our midst. So again, does it mean that we're folding up shop and running back there? Sahalavai, some of us will be Zochas, some of us, some of us won't, or some of us will now, some of us will later. But even before any life plans, a person has to have an awareness. And that awareness is incredibly important because we know that the moment we forget that we are in Galus and the moment we begin to think that Galus life is l'chatrila is the moment that we put ourselves in existential peril. So I'm just pointing this out because sometimes we see David Amalek is referring to Galus as a dark night. And I think for many of us, when we read that passage, do we relate to Galus being a dark night? How many people here relate to Galus being a dark night? So maybe if you're very feeling, you know, Rabbi Soloveitchik has a, has a term. He says, you know, the Ribbono Olam is Hayahovev Yiyah. Ribbono Shalom is timeless. It's timeless. He says, past, present, future, all together. So Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, he says that the Jew has the ability to go ahead and kind of tap into that divine timelessness. He calls it the unitive time consciousness. Unitive time consciousness, which means we see this by, by the Yamim Tovim. Because by the Yamim Tovim, we don't go ahead and simply relive historical events, right? We just came off of Pesach. We're coming to Shavuos, right? Emir Hashem, We have first day of Shavuos, we stand up for the Kriyas HaTorah. There's a whole Machlokes HaPoskim as to whether or not you should stand up for the reading of Aseras HaDibros or not on Shavuos. So many poskim hold you're not supposed to stand up for Asar Sadibros. In other words, if you stand up and for Kriya Satora, you can stay standing. But if you sit for Kriya Satora, you should not stand up. Why not? What do you think? Why not? What's the risk? Excellent. Because who says Asar Sadibros is any more important than Parsha Shmini? Or then Tazriya Mitzora, or Parshas Kedoshim, or Parshas, it's all Torah. So if you stand up for Aseras Adibros, you're lending additional chashivos, importance to the Aseras Adibros more than the rest of Torah. By the way, I want to point something out. The Gemara Masechus Brachas brings down that Aseras Adibros used to be part of Kriyashma. Isn't that incredible? Aseras Adibros used to be part of Kriyashma itself. And then Chazal took it out. Why did they take it out? Because people were saying, oh, Aseras Adibros is more important than anything else. So Rabbi Salalichuk is of the opinion, as many other posts came as well, that no, you can't stand up for Aserah Sadebros. Why? You're not showing that Aserah Sadebros are more important. Why do we stand up for Aserah Sadebros? Those who stand up. Why do you stand up for Aserah Sadebros? To reenact Maimed Har Sinai. Because what's happening over here is, I am experiencing another Kabbalah Sator. The same reason that many kilos have the minute to stand up for Az Yashir. Why am I standing up for Az Yashir? Because I am re-experiencing, I'm re-experiencing the notion of Kriyas Yamsov. It's not the Pshat that I'm remembering that which happened in the past. I am re-experiencing it contemporarily now as well. What Rabbi Salavechik calls this unitive time consciousness. Just like the Ribbono Shel Olam could be past, present, and future simultaneously, obviously we can't do that, but we could tap into that divine dynamic just a little bit. See, even if I don't feel in my relationship with Galus, 
I don't feel like I'm living in a dark night. Because Baruch Hashem, that's not my experience. That's not my experience. My experience is that even in Gullus, it's a golden age of Jewelry, which, which it absolutely is. But at the end of the day, remember, I can't be myopic and only see my particular circumstances. I'm a member of Klal Yisrael. And this great schos of being a member of Klal Yisrael is you live in the past, you live in the present, and you live in the future. And when I look at our story of Gullus, it is an overwhelming difficult one. So therefore, coming back to the Radak, the Radak says, So how do you make it through the long, dark night of Gullus? With hope. With hope. With optimism that Amir Tashem Mashiach is going to come. But not only is Mashiach going to come, what Radak is adding over here, what's the great chesed of Mashiach? What's the great chesed of the Rebbe Shaolam in Messianic Redemption? The great chesed is, even if I don't deserve it, even if I don't deserve it, the Rebbe Shaolam could still bring about that gula. Now, let, let's pause here for just a moment, because in general, this discussion of Golos, we often think about on a national level. But remember, again, there's also a concept of personal galus. Right? What's, what, what's personal galus? What would you say? Nisionos. So it could be nisyonos. Good. Good. You could even globalize. I'm sorry? When you put yourself in When you put yourself in it. What does that mean? Okay, so right, right. You could, you could put yourself in self-imposed exile. Good, excellent. What else could it mean? Personal gullus. This is incredibly... Anyone here, here, here ever experienced personal gullus? I feel like when someone like, when goes, like, like a depressive state, they like, Good. It could be depression, a depressive state. I, I want to say even something a little less dramatic than that. What is gullus? Right? On a basic definition, what is gullus? Sorry, I was going to Good, good. So when a person doesn't have it, good, good. These are examples. Before we get to the specific examples, a definition. What is galus? Just give me a definition. Galus is the state when or where I am not where I need to be. That's what galus is, right? To be gola. Somebody, Reuven kills Shimon accidentally. What's his punishment? Uh, it's, it's chumish, by the way, not a trick question. Right? What? Right, Ir Miklot, what is that called? Golos. He goes, he goes to Golos, right? Golos is, I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be home. Reuven's supposed to be home, but he accidentally killed Shimon. He is Gola, he is exiled. So the concept of Golos is, I'm not where I need to be, yes. Oh, because some, excellent point. Because sometimes in order to grow, you have to take yourself out of a situation that you want to be in, and go somewhere where you really don't want to be, but you need to be. So sometimes it's even having go to the Makam Tar. I, I don't. I don't want to live there, or I don't want to be there. I'm totally happy here. I feel like this is where I need to be. But at the end of the day, this is maybe where I want to be, but it's not where I need to be. So I need to be goal. I need to lift myself up from where I want to be, and ultimately go where I need to be. So there are different forms of galus, but on the most basic level, galus means I should be here. I'm not here, I'm somewhere else. I'm somewhere else. And I just want to point out that this is an incredibly profound yisod because all of us experience inner personalistic galos. All of us. This is why, you know, you could be standing in Eretz Yisrael. You could be standing on the Harabayis. 
You could be standing in the base Hamikdash. You could be the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, standing in the Kodesh Hakadoshim, and you could be in a state of personalistic galus. Because if you're not where you need to be in life, if you're not doing what you need to be doing in life, if you are not cultivating the personality that you should really be cultivating, then you could be geographically in the right place, but you could be in a profound state of emotional gallus. And this is, an, by the way, <laughs> what I'm describing is pretty much like what you see throughout the Nevi'im. Right? You see periods of time where Klav Yisrael were in geographic, they were in the geographic correct location. Right? They, they were geographically home, but they were in a state of spiritual exile. They were in a state of spiritual exile. So they were, they were sitting on the earth of Eretz Yisrael, but yet, again, personalistically, so far from where they needed to go. So I'm sharing this with you because... Whenever we speak about Gullus, like I said before, because we live in such a different age, sometimes it's hard for us to relate to like Gullus as physical diaspora. Because as much as we intellectually know that we're not in Eretz Yisrael, sometimes I don't necessarily feel, and it's a pigam, I don't necessarily feel that I'm in Gullus. But I think we could all relate to personalistic Gullus. Because I think all of us have had times in life where I'm not where I want to be as a person. I'm not holding where I want to be holding, whether it's in my ruchnius or whether it's in my relationships, whatever it might be. And so just understand, I mean, you, you'll, you'll, you'll do this application, but whatever, whenever, whatever and whenever we learn about national gullus, whatever you're learning in that sense, you could always apply to personal gullus as well. So in this particular lesson, the same way, what gets me through national gullus? What gets me through the nighttime, the ongoing night of national gullus? is the hope, is the belief, that it's going to be okay. The sun's going to come up, Mashiach's going to come, Geula's going to come, whether I deserve it, whether I don't deserve it, somehow, way, it's going to be okay. What do you do when you're suffering through personal galus? You remind yourself that some way, somehow, you're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. How, when, what, where, those are all variables that remain to be determined. But even when in a state of personalistic, although some way, somehow, I'll get through it. If you continue a little bit, I'll share with you a beautiful idea by the Mari Cheskel. So the Mari Cheskel writes in number six, you have a little biography over there as well. The Mari Cheskel writes as follows. He says, V'hinei, kishak Kodesh Baruch Hu misnaheg imano b'midas ha-chesed ha-mefursim she'gal le'inkol, shutov, so this is incredible. So the Mari Cheskel chooses to go in a little bit of a different direction in terms of understanding Boker versus Laila. See, he says, refers to those times in life where the Chesed Habore, the kindness and the goodness of the Ribbono Olam, are obvious and apparent. Right? There are times in life where it's just so clear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is taking care of me, that He loves me, that He's looking after me, He's showering His brachos upon me. That's L'Hagid Baboker Chastecha. And that's easy. Everyone has the ability to sing the praises of the Rebano Shal Olam when life is good and going according to plan. Masha'enkin, second line of number six. And by the way, when life is good and things go my way, everyone is in love with the Rebano Shal Olam. Masha'enkin, 
And this is a beautiful insight that Marnie Cheskel says, but what about when life is difficult? What about when life is difficult? And what about when life is challenging? And what about when things don't go my way? And what about when I'm really unhappy with the things that are unfolding all around me? What's my relationship to the Ribbono Shal Olam in those moments? So the Mari Cheskel writes, you know, it's interesting. I, I do, I have a share in the morning before that Yomi in Sidkasa Tzadik, Reb Tzadik HaKoyin of Lublin. And today we actually just did a piece where Reb Tzadik writes that there are two ways you can know something, right? What are the two ways you can know something? It's incredible. He says, you can know something in your mind and you can know something in your heart. Or he says, to say it a little bit differently, you can know something intellectually and you can know something emotionally. What's the difference between knowing something intellectually and emotionally? What would you say? What's the distinction? Okay. Good, good. What else is the difference? Excellent. What else? Oh, interesting. Meaning intellect might be based on fact versus emotion, which may be based on feeling good. What else? Yes. So this is what the Tzaddik says. And it's incredible. You know, once he says it, you're like, oh, now so many of the things that I do make so much sense. He says, you can know something to be intellectually true and totally ignore it. Totally ignore it. I know that I should not eat the additional piece of chocolate cake. I know it. Intellectually, it's clear. But I can fundamentally ignore it. Interestingly, from Tzaddik posits, things that you know in your mind, you could know and you could ignore Things that you know in your heart, you generally don't ignore. It's such a profound yisod, which is so interesting because I think this might be a little bit of a machlokus in chasidim and misnagdim, because I think misnagdim might argue on this fact. I think, right? I think if you were to ask the briskers, they would fundamentally argue on this. They would say just the opposite. You know, things that you know in your mind, that's MS. Feelings are not MS, but... Here lies your sin of chassid and misnagid, right? Reb Tzaddik says just the opposite. The things that you know in your mind. I know a ton of things to be objectively true. Love dafka that I actually act upon that information. Or though, not, that information doesn't necessarily inform my life. But the things that I feel, the things that I feel, those are the things that become the immutable truths of my life. So the Mari Cheska, and I, I, again, I think different I think different people may relate to this idea in different ways. I was very moved by this idea by Rab Tzaddik, and at least for myself, I found it to be unequivocally true because not a day goes by that I don't go against certain things that I know to be intellectually true, but either I just ignore them or just go against them. But that which you hold in your heart, those are very often the truths which inform the way that you live. In any event, the Marian Cheskel is highlighting this same yisod. And he says, intellectually, intellectually, I know that everything the Ribbono Shal Olam does is Latoba. Right? We spoke about this in our last class, that that's part of the fabric of Emuna. Emuna believes that ultimately, again, Gamzu Latoba, everything that comes from the Ribbono Shal Olam is Tov. I know it to be intellectually true. Emotionally, 
Sometimes I don't necessarily agree with that. Or sometimes I just don't feel that. I know it. I know it. Because, of course, intellectually, I know HaKadosh Baruch Hu is good. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves me. And therefore, by definition, everything that happens comes from that goodness, from that love. Intellectually, I know it. Emotionally, especially if I'm suffering, I might know it, but I might not feel it. So the Mari Cheskel says something amazing. He says, what David HaMelech is trying to highlight to us is that it is not just enough to intellectually know that the Ribono Shal Olam is good and everything he does is good, but rather I have to work on myself to feel that as well. And he goes on, he says something amazing. He goes on, he says, Miko Makom, Tzarech Lazet Emuna Gidola. Right? The ability to know this, ultimately, again, is incredibly important. It's an incredibly beautiful insight, I think. So the Mariah Cheskel says, That's easy. That's easy. Because what does that refer to according to the Mariah Cheskel? What does Boker refer to? I'm sorry? Hashem's chesed is obvious. Thank you. Good. Right? Good. Excellent. I, I'm not sure why I'm having difficulty today. Good. I'm good. My age is catching up with me. But in any event, good. Hashem's chesed is obvious. That's obvious. That's easy. Everyone, right? Again, think about a simcha that you experienced. Think about an accomplishment that you experienced. Think about a bracha that you were zolcha to have. It's easy to sing the Ribbono Shal Olam's praises when life is good. That's easy. And by the way, it doesn't even require emuna because it's so obvious. It's like reflexive. But I have to harbor in myself the emuna, the belief that you are good, Ribbono Shal Olam. Balelos, at night. Night represents adversity. Night represents difficulty. I have to work on myself. Now, interestingly enough, if I were to ask you, where does Emuna reside? Does Emuna reside in your mind or in your heart? What would you say? Good. So actually, we're going to talk about this, about the innate, innateness of Emunah. In terms of where Emunah lives, I think different people are wired in different ways. I think some people are just naturally more cerebral people. And some people are just naturally more emotional people. I think Emunah ultimately, again, has to reside in both places. But ultimately, if we go with Tzaddik's idea, that the distinction between intellectual knowledge versus emotional knowledge is that intellectual knowledge you could know, but yet actively choose to ignore. But emotional knowledge, once you know it, you will not ignore it. Then the goal really becomes, it's in Rab Tzaddik's view, which is not just Rab Tzaddik, I think that's the view of Hasidus, is to go ahead and have your emuna reside in your heart. I'm striving for emotional emuna. Now again, can you have emotional emuna without intellectual emuna? Can you? Yeah. Absolutely. What do we call that? Emunah pshuta. 
Right? That's emuna pshuta. Right? Emuna pshuta is is emotional emuna without. So, in other words, if you go over to someone who has emuna pshuta and you ask them, explain to me your emuna in the ribbon shalola, what will they tell you? I believe. <laughs> yeah, it, that's what it is. I, 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 I can't explain it to you. I can just tell you it's what I believe. By the way, and you could go over to somebody with an intellectual amuna, and by the way, you ask them, explain to me your amuna, what are they going to do? They're going to give you a whole philosophical discourse. Well, well who, who would you like to hear? Amuna according to the Ramchal. Amuna according to the Amuna according to the Rambam. Who would, you, who would you like to hear? Now, five minutes into it, you're generally sleeping already. But, but, but Lamaisa, right, it's two different kinds of amuna. I just want to point out something very interesting because I think you see even like an evolution in Amni. So I'll give you an example. If you were to, so, so those of you, those of you who are privileged to still have grandparents who are alive, I, I would urge you to, to engage in the following exercise. Ask your grandmother why she lights Shabbos candles. I will give you a money back guarantee about what her answer is going to be. Right? What is her answer going to be? Because my, my mother did it. Okay, and if I were to ask any of you why, whether if you have them looked like Shabbos candles already, or Emirat Hashem, one day Bishat you will light Shabbos candles, you're going to answer me why? Right, because again, well, well, what depends, right? Two candles, Zohar, Shomer, Shalom Bayis, there's a Rambam, there's a this, there's a that. I'm sure you're all incredibly well versed in Alochas. Which is a greater level, you or your grandmother? Hey, I'm sorry? I, 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 I don't, I, I, I actually would make the exact opposite argument. I think what our generation needs more is actually a lot more Amun Pshuta. I think everything has become so intellectualized that you have people who know an incredible, the greatest danger, right? The, the existential challenge of our generation is inspiration, is Amuna. No, it was a response to the fact, not that women need, 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 need is a very dangerous word. Right, because I'm saying need. What, what do I? I need a million. I need a million dollars. Maybe I want a million dollars. Remember, that was a societal issue, and, and the Chavetz Chaim understood that if women are able to grow in every single area, but the one place they meet a dead end is their Yiddishkeit. How is that going to stem? And, and obviously, the Chavetz Chaim was absolutely correct. Need. I'm, I'm always scared of the word need because people very often use need and want interchangeably. But again, let me come back to this for just a moment. So again, the answer is, which one is better? They're both great. They're both great. But I think we would all agree that there's something beautifully simple in your grandmother's answer. There's something beautiful, beautifully simple about it. It's emuna pshuta. Now again, they're not exclusive. I want to be very clear, right? Emuna of the heart and emuna of the mind. The Shabbos candles because my mother did it and the Shabbos candles because you know all of the Torah around it. They're both incredible. They're both incredible. I would venture to say which one has greater staying power. What do you think? I think emuna pshuta. Has greater staying power because intellect you could always erode intellect, right? Because remember again, if you know something intellectually, that's fine. But if somebody presents you with a more intellectually compelling argument, then what? Then that argument wins the day, right? Again, in, in, intellect is all about is all about, for lack of a better term, we'll call it you know pre-organized thoughtful constructs. 
So right now, again, my intellectual construct is this. If somebody presents me with something better or something more compelling, then perhaps I'll switch my intellectual construct. Emuna pshuta is so simple that it's immutable. It's so simple that it's unchangeable. And by the way, to a certain degree, I think if you look, to me, this is what I find most compelling. And maybe because I was exposed to this in my family from a young age. If you look at those Jews who rebuilt after the Holocaust, look at the rebuilding, which again is less than a century ago. Right? Look at how Am Yisrael was virtually decimated and there was a rebuilding. How did that rebuilding take place? What was the amuna that fueled that rebuilding? It wasn't an intellectual amuna. It couldn't be an intellectual amuna. Why? Because there was absolutely no way to comprehend what happened. There was no way to comprehend how six million Jews, how six million precious neshamas met such a barbaric end. There is no intellectual argument. And in fact, personally, I feel anyone who tries to advance different reasonings for this, I, I think it personally borders on apikarsus and maybe even tinged with a little bit of amaratsus. But, but, but the only way you go ahead and rebuild from something like that is if you have a munapshuta. Is if you believe that, Rebbein Shalom, I don't understand you. I don't understand you. But I believe in you. But I, why? Because I believe in you. Because my father believed in you. Because my grandfather believed in you. Because my grandmother lit Shabbos candles. Because this. It's just, it, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an emotional emuna that is almost divorced from reason. And because it's divorced from reason, it can even withstand the most barbaric and overwhelming circumstances. So again, I, I want to be clear, not that the intellectual amuna doesn't have a place. Again, we are living in times where, you know, Torah is accessible like never before. Like never before. And obviously, that's the chesed of the Ribbon Shalom. So obviously, if the Ribbon is allowing us to live in a time where, right, if you have a question, halacha, what do you do? Ask a rafwa. Beautiful. Good. What do a lot of other people do? Ignore it. Okay, no, chas v'shalom, right? Okay, v'achshem, you're a group of nashim sitkanis. You Google it, right? Isn't it incredible? Isn't it incredible that even for good things, even for ruchnius, right? Even for ruchnius. I'm sorry? Absolutely, people do it. Absolutely. Now, again, girls, let me focus you on this. The, the, The example that I was just giving is just to show you how accessible Torah is. I'm not, I'm not advocating for Googling your Shilas. I'm saying just understand the time that, understand the time that we live in, right? Understand the time that we live in, that Torah is so incredibly accessible. Girls, don't get thrown off by Google, okay? I was just, I'm giving you an example of the accessibility of Torah. Never before has anything like this. I don't know how. I don't know if any of you ever use like any of the databases that exist. Otsar Achachma, Otsar Achachma, Barilan. Where else? It, it, it is. It is absolutely overwhelming that you can access Kala Torah Kula at your fingertips. You have a background. You don't have a background. It doesn't make a difference. Obviously, if the Ribbon Shal Olam is making that Torah so accessible, it means that he wants us to refine the intellect as well, right? Chashbarach wouldn't make it accessible if he didn't want it to be accessible. 
But Lameisa, this balance between intellectual amuna, cognitive, or I should say intellectual amuna, emotional amuna is incredible. So bring this back to the Mari Cheskel. So the Mari Cheskel writes as follows. He says, at the end of the day, this is what it means. That's easy. That's easy. When times are good, to see the chesed, there's no nisayon in that. There's no nisayon in that. The emunas But do you have emuna that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is good and that He loves you even when you are going through the lelos of life? Do you have that emuna? And again, the Mari Cheskel doesn't say what, what kind of emuna is he referring to. Intellectual emuna, emotional emuna. Maybe different people operate in different ways. Zadok would certainly posit that the Mari Cheskel, David HaMelech, is referring to emotional emuna because intellectual emuna often will not stand up in the lelos. But emotional emuna absolutely will. But again, however, I, I say people are wired in different ways. So whatever works for you, works for you. But says the Mari Cheskel, that's the meaning of what David Amalek is trying to convey. Easy. Easy. The true litmus test of the Ruchnius of a Jew of where I'm holding in my Ruchnius, do I believe that a Kaddish Baruch who loves me, cares about me, watches over me, and is choreographing my circumstances? even when I am in the lelos of life. Be them nash, be it national lelos or personal lelos. All right, so we'll stop over here. Emirat Hashem, we will continue with Laila through next week as well, Emirat Hashem, and continue in our journey in Amunah.